of slowed look this morning at the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. While we've been, we've seen that the king has arrived, he has proclaimed the coming kingdom, he has, he has decried the, the old system and the old ordinances and said that they are going to cease in him. And in fact, the, the figurehead of that would be the destruction of the city and temple. They wouldn't even be able to continue the old ordinances because of the, the new institution, the new ordination that God was setting up through the kingdom of Jesus, through the church. And so soon we're going to see Jesus inaugurate the new covenant and kingdom through his blood. We're going to see him seal that new covenant kingdom in his resurrection. And we're going to see him inherit that new covenant and kingdom as he sits at the Father's right hand on the throne of all authority in heaven and earth. And then we see him through the book of Acts build that kingdom as he empowers his church with the spirit that they would preach the gospel, see many saved, baptized, and taught to obey his commandments. This is how God builds his kingdom. Jesus, through his spirit, by his word and his ordinary means, empowers us to do the work. Now, as we're making our way there, Jesus is, is preparing the, the beginning of the kingdom. He is, he is going to give his disciples, who would then give to the church, a, a, a meal that he wants them to partake of. We often call this communion, we call it the Lord's Supper. And that's just Christianese for us. We, we may as well call it the king's meal, the Lord simply means that the reigning one, the, the supper is to be a meal that they would eat. We can call it the king's meal. This king who is establishing a new covenant and a new kingdom in his blood is giving to them a meal that he wants them to share with him on a regular basis. The concept of the meal, and, and I hope you found Mark chapter 14, verse 22. By now, we will be reading there from just a moment. But, but the, the concept of a meal in Scripture is, is so significant. To, to have a meal with somebody is something very, very intimate and usually symbolizes. When, when, it's, when it's displayed in such a way, it's usually symbolizing some kind of beginning or, or strengthening of a relationship. That's why it was so horrible when we read in Genesis 3 that that, that, that meal that was forbidden of them was the fruit of the, of the tree that was in the middle of the garden and that the, the devil had in his rebellion uh, 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 opposed God and then came into God's, God's created world to tempt the king of the created world, Adam, the representative of all humanity, and he tempted him to a meal to be shared with the devil in opposition of the Lord God. Often covenants would be inaugurated or enjoyed or relationships would be sealed by, by a shared meal. This is why it was such a betrayal when Judas had a meal with Jesus and then betrayed him. Meals are very important in Scripture. And then we see that, that in, a, uh, in the sort of next significant meal of the, the redemptive history through Scripture, we see, we see the Passover when God commands his people not just to kill a lamb, and not just to, to paint it over the doorpost or remember things, but actually to partake of that meal, sit around the table, eat its parts, and remember what God has done in his redemption. And then we can even see over in Exodus chapter 24, when, when, when Moses is called up to the mountain and the, the elders are, are to come a, a little way closer than the nation, and it says that they, they beheld God and they ate and they drank. God, God, as he's about to begin this, this newly inaugurated, covenanted, sanctified people, this nation to live in the promised land that he's just given his laws to, he brings their representatives before him and they commune in his presence. They eat and they drink. God loves using meals as a symbol of relationship and communion. 
And then, of course, Jesus here at the the last supper or the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, as he's instituting, starting off this new tradition, this new sacrament for a new kingdom called the king's meal. Here he again sits down with his brothers and his, his, his brothers and his disciples in the room. And he teaches them this is what it's going to look like. You're going to be eating me in a sense. You're going to be communing with me. While I'm away at my father's right-hand side, I will not be away from you. I will be with you. You will will feast on me spiritually. God loves using the meal. While, While in Genesis 3, the words take and eat were used as sin. They took and they ate and they were cursed. In in the Passover, they were told to take and kill and then eat. But in in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, in Matthew's version, he says, here is my body, here is the blood, take and eat because I have been killed. And then then the call goes out in Revelation 19, the the great thing that we are waiting for is that feast, the supper, when, when God no longer says take and kill and eat or take and eat and remember, but he simply says come and eat. Come into the feast. Come into the inaugurated, finalized, finished kingdom and eat with me for eternity in that that meal, in that supper, in that eternal feast. God loves using the meal, and so he has. And we'll read now in Mark chapter 14 how Jesus begins and institutes and blesses his own meal, the king's meal, the Lord's Supper. Verse 22 of Mark chapter 14 reads like this. And as they were eating... He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to, uh, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. <coughs> Before we start uh, uh, making sense of what the Lord's Supper is, we need to go a little, bit, a little bit more broad spectrum and ask ourselves, what is a means of grace. Now, you'll find an article in your, uh, in your bulletin, and, and uh, Keith mentioned it. Uh, as we discuss the Lord's Supper, the King's Meal, it is a means of grace, but in the Reformed world and throughout uh, the, the last 500 years of history, we use that language very intentionally. I want to define it for us so that we understand. The, 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 the means of grace that we speak of are the Word of God, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Of course, we, we could include as sort of an overarching one there, the gathered church, because that is where all of those things are done in unison and in unity. We could add, of course, fellowship, because all of those things are done one to another and one with another, the reading and hearing of the word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and of course, prayer. All of those are shown to be congregational tasks as we do them together. Uh, So fellowship and church can be thrown in there as well, but the key ones that are usually named in the Reformed history will be the word of God, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and of course, prayer. We should think of a means of grace as something that is a very significant way that God has promised that he will come to us and bless us. In Exodus chapter 20, just after the Lord God has given the the, the nation of Israel through Moses the, the commandments of the law, 
He then tells them that as you establish in all of your worship places, as you establish altars of stone that you will make sacrifices on, he makes this promise. He says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, he says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This is the understanding of the means of grace in the church. God has instituted ways for his name to be remembered, and when we partake in those things particularly, he comes to us and blesses us. It's more than just us doing things. It is him coming through his appointed means to bless us. When we talk of the the ordinary means of grace, we are talking about those things that God has instituted in his word as being the places that he blesses us in. We, we, we often use the analogy of plants and keeping a plant alive in, in this way, that, that, that if you wanted to keep a, a plant alive, you can come up with a hundred specialty, really novel, really clever, unique ways to do that. Like you, 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 can, you can come up and try and get your own book deal or, or make your own blog about how you choose these really special ways to keep a plant alive, and that's fine. That's called the, the church growth movement. They, they have all of their own ideas about how to give and sustain spiritual life. But of course, if, if you're happy with just keeping a plant alive, like doing things the way that people have done them for thousands of years, you know what you've got to do? I mean, we all know what we need. We learn this in like grade one. Water, nutrients, sunlight. That's it. That's really all that a plant needs. Everything else is just superfluous, additional, unnecessary uh, peculiarities of people. This is how it is in the church. God has given us a way that a church can be individually sustained, that we can be corporately unified and strengthened and sent on mission and perpetually historically unified. You know what we're doing when we come together, 9.30 a.m. in Underwood in 2022? We are doing almost identically what our brothers and sisters have been doing for thousands of years all over the world. Word, prayer, regular sacraments, singing of hymns to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it, and that is enough. So when we say the means of grace, that's what we mean. God's appointed means for how he has promised he will regularly work. Of course, anybody can say that they had a, they had a great move of God in their heart or, 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 or they could think about, like, you know, couldn't God do anything he wants at any particular time? Of course. When we talk about means of grace, we're not being superstitious as if, as if there's just a few things that if you chant it the right way or a few things that God is able to use, he can do whatever he wants. He made a prophet bake a cake of dung and he spoke through a donkey in the past. We're just not running to those things as the ordinary ways that he uses things, right? He has given to us peculiar ways. Not that he's limited, but that he has revealed himself through particular means. They are... The the only thing that makes the means of grace powerful for growth is the fact that they are given by the Lord Jesus and the fact that they are blessed by him with the working of the Holy Spirit. We are not superstitious. It is not that these things are magical. It is that Jesus gave it to us. Jesus blesses it with the working of his Holy Spirit, and so we devote ourselves to them. This is the means of grace where God says, every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you. And bless you. When we speak of a means of grace, we are already presupposing a few particular things. When we speak of a means of grace, we are presupposing that the church is more than just a human gathering. That there's plenty of people who maybe 
Maybe they've been hurt by the institutionalized church. Maybe they got abused by leadership. Maybe, they, maybe they've just witnessed corruption or whatever. And, and you find this all over the, the spectrum in the millennial generation, right? We've been hurt. Institution is bad. Top-down authority is bad. What we need is just super organic. No one's anybody's boss. There's no authority. We just come together. It's just us doing stuff, and we figure out how we want to do it. Very popular, very attractive to some, not biblical at all. When we talk about the means of grace, we are, when we say there's certain things that God uses particularly that we should conform ourselves to, we're already presupposing the fact that the church and the gathering of the church is more than a human institution. It is a divine calling that we come here to gather. It is a, a as the Old Testament would say, a holy convocation. This is not just tradition. This is God's instituted way that he calls us to gather, not neglect the meeting, because he will bless us that way and he will glorify Christ that way. And not only has he started it, he carefully regulates it by his word so that we aren't free to just come in and figure out what works in our generation or figure out what works in our demographic or our time or come up with all of our own ideas about how to have fun in church, meet with God, do what makes you feel his presence. We don't do that. We carefully regulate our worship according to the Spirit by the Word of God. We are are presupposing all of these things when we even speak of a means of grace. And so he says, I will come to you and bless you. There's a way to think about about the means of grace that is like a, I use the analogy of, the, of, the, of a water wheel, right? Think medieval ages, you've got a running river or creek, and what they put in is one of those Ferris wheel type looking wheels with buckets all around it. And as the, the water goes through, so the, 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 uh, uh, the, 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 the wheel turns. Now there's a way to think about the sacraments or the means of grace that is kind of like that. There's a few different elements, there's a few different parties involved, but really, it's just a bunch of moving parts. Rather, if you trans- transform yourself maybe later into, the, into history where today we have such things as water power or you know, hy- hydropower or, or wind power, now we start getting an idea of what the sacraments are like, the means of grace are like. It's not just that there's moving parts that we can watch, but that behind it, it is producing a certain kind of energy. It is actually so connected to a, to, to, a, uh, to a conductor that it is actually producing electricity in the normal rotation of that, of that procedure. Now, we're not going to go to the Catholic side with our little bit of Latin this morning and say ex opere operato. We all know what that means, of course. Ex opero operato means that it simply by doing it, it's having its effect. You come in, you sleep. You come in, you're drunk. You come in, you don't speak the language. doesn't matter. As long as you're in the presence of a preaching word, you'll go out a little bit more holy. You come in, you have no idea what they're saying, but you take the bread stuff, you drink the juice. Whoops, I grabbed wine. Now you're even worse off. Uh, You don't know what's going on. You just go back and sit down. doesn't matter. You did it, and therefore, by the very fact that you did it, the magic is in the bits, so you got grown. Or the the baptism, you don't understand. Maybe it's even under threat of death, but if the Catholics take you or the the, the colonizers take you and they put you underwater, something happened. You don't have to understand it. No, we don't believe that. It's not automatic, and yet it is powerful. It is the, the moving of the wheel. Yes, there's just visible parts, and yet within it, it is producing something in us. And then we can start asking the question of what does the meal mean? 
This is where we'll start looking more into the text today and then uh, uh, rather than being merely topical. But look at the text. As, as we see this meal done, there's particular parts of it that are carried out and there is particular meaning underneath it. Just as in Exodus 24, when the elders and Moses came, they beheld God, they ate and they drank, so also now in the, in the upper room, hours before Jesus will be arrested and tried The disciples are beholding God. They are eating and they are drinking in the presence of the incarnate God. This last Passover, the the last Passover that will ever be recognized by God. Never again will a Passover be done that has any spiritual significance. Only in the sense that maybe it was tradition until it died out in the church's practice. This is now passed over into the Lord's Supper, the King's Meal, the ordinance of communion in the church. And now we see here there are certain elements to be used. In verse 22, it says that he he took the bread. This was the bread that was being used in the Passover meal. And then down in verse 23, it says that he took a cup. Now, now we don't need to get too specific about which cup in the the Passover meal did he use and, and particularly too specific about what kind of bread, what did it look like, how was it baked, because while that was specific in Jewish tradition and somewhat specific from the Passover itself historically, the New Testament doesn't specify. It simply says bread and wine. And so those are the elements that we should utilize is the bread and the wine, those are the ones used. I've heard people say, why don't we use chips and Coke? Or why don't we use snack, snack, uh, snackable Lunchables out of, the, out of the alfoil bits with a little bit of cheese and some orange juice? Why don't we do that? Or why don't, if we're all at home and we're, we're not meeting because of the fear of, of some virus, why don't we all just take whatever we got? And I've got Pringles and they've got corn chips and I've got Doritos and they've got Cornettos. What does it matter? It doesn't matter at all. And of course the answer is yes. There's necessary elements that God has instituted through it. The reason we don't take just anything that we can find is because Jesus didn't consecrate, Jesus didn't bless, and Jesus didn't institute anything you could find. He instituted bread as an appropriate symbol of his body and wine as an appropriate symbol of his blood in the covenant. So does this mean that it is not communion if we don't take exactly those elements? Does it mean that we absolutely have to use bread and wine at all times? And the answer should not be no, it should be yes and no. Yes, in as much as it is possible, we should, remembering that the church is regulated by God's word, we should at all times, whenever possible, strictly conform to the example of the apostles and the institution of the Lord. However, if that becomes impossible and all that we have in our underground church is something other than pure bread and the the fruit of the vine fermented in wine, if we find ourselves unable to do that, we don't legalistically withhold ourselves from communion. We partake of the less than ideal. And yet, whenever possible, the encouragement would be that you would take of the wine and take of the bread because these are the things instituted by God. 
Of course, here at Hope Church, what we do is we provide both the wine and the juice so that if there is uh, underage people who would prefer not to partake, that is, the, uh, that is your choice and conscience. Or if you are of the conscience that I hope you grow out of, that wine is itself sinful, then, 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 then that option is there for you because we don't want you to not be withholding, uh, sorry, not be partaking of the Lord's Supper simply because of a conviction that you have. We come and we partake as a family. And whenever possible, to, our, to the most of our means, we take of bread and we take of wine because we take seriously the institution of the Lord. <clears throat> now, he says of his bread, look at verse 22. Says, As they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And you'll notice each of those elements in our, in our own procedures. We, we bless it by prayer. We, we give thanks for it. We break it into its parts and it is distributed. Or we come and we take it. And he says, come, uh, sorry, he says, take, this is my body. Now, there's, there's a certain way to understand this is my body in a way that is absolutely unique to all the other times that Jesus says is in the New Testament. We really have to start doing some theology of what the meaning of is is. This is the, the great debate that uh, definitely erupted uh, out of the, the Reformation was this, this understanding of transubstantiation. Trans, you know what that word means these days. It's to change. Come on, we're in church. <clears throat> we trans is to change. Substance is what something is made of. Changing what it is made of, transubstantiation. This is the idea that the Catholics have, that when Jesus says, this is my body, that for some reason he meant something entirely different than what he meant every other time he said is or am. When he said, I am bread in John 6 as he preached Jesus, in as much as he's saying this bread is me, also he's saying I am bread. Now is Jesus literally carbohydrates in fibers? No. Jesus also said I'm the water of life. Now was he H2O? No. He also said I'm a gate. Was he made of wood and bolts and nails? No. He also said that, 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 that I am the, the light. Now was he rays and photons of light? I'll just let you answer that in your own mind. We, we know what he means by is. We know what he means by this kind of analogy. Jesus is saying that this is in the sense that the thing signified is, is, is communicated by what it signifies. The bread is the body in the analogy. The bread is not changing of substance. The inside is not having any uh, uh, alteration whatsoever, but rather he is bringing it into a fuller sense of a meaning. However, not only is it an error of this passage to think of the body, it's not just a, a, mis, a mistranslation or a misinterpretation uh, uh, of the word is to start thinking that the bread somehow changes. The, the greater blasphemy, the greater error is what is then carried on. Because what, the, well, what has been taught throughout Catholic history is that, is that the, because the bread becomes the body, Therefore, the offering of the breaking of the body, the eating of the body, and the drinking of the wine is a sacrifice of atonement that pays for sin, what they call an unbloody sacrifice. Jesus is every time the priest calls his body from heaven and implants it into the bread, so there Jesus is being sacrificed for the payment of sin to offer an atonement. Every single mass, so they Think. This is not just a, a, an error of substance. This is not just an error of that word being misinterpreted. This is a misunderstanding of the entire point of the meal 
and the entire point of Jesus' death. Jesus offered a once-for-all-time sacrifice that never needed to be repeated. The, The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice in that sense. It is a memorial. It is a remembering time. It is recalling the finished event. It is never accomplishing the event of atonement itself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 through 14 speaks this for us. It says, In comparison and contrast to all of the sacrifices of the Jews, including Passover, which were made every year, every day, every week, every month, every time you sinned, all of these times of repetition were over and over again because they were powerless. Verse 12, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is to say, he gave one sacrifice, then stopped sacrificing. He went and sat. He didn't get ready for another sacrifice. A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus never needs to die again. His body never needs to suffer again. There is not a single ounce of a single sin that needs to be punished again for the Christian to have a clean conscience before God. We have been perfected for all time if we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Amen? The meal, friends. Don't don't ever get ourselves into this. I, I like to say we've all got a little Catholic inside of us. We've all got that, that that wants to beat ourselves up with self-flagellation when we've done something wrong, that wants to punish ourselves and and withhold ourselves from from the Lord's Supper. We we always think that that maybe maybe if I just go and take the bread and and have the wine, I'll have something magical happen to me. Maybe I'll get healed. Maybe my my memories of my past sins will go away. All superstition. Maybe as as I take this, God will forgive me again because he can see that I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper. Nonsense. Jesus died once for all sins. The belief and the remembrance is what the meal is about, not the achieving. Don't blaspheme Christ by saying something has to be done to achieve that which he bled, died, rose, and sat down to achieve. Amen? So what is the bread? It is the symbol of his body. It is the, 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 sim, the, sign, uh, the, the sign of his body in this analogy of the meal And there um, he goes on to speak of his cup in verse 23. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. At Passover, they were remembering the redemption from, from slavery, and they were anticipating the Messiah's coming when he would establish a kingdom and atone for iniquity and anoint a most holy place. Jesus is saying that covenant is coming to fulfillment. I am bringing a new covenant. I'm redefining this whole meal. It's not all about Egypt anymore. It's not all about Israel as a nation anymore. It's about Jesus the Messiah who saves some out of Israel and saves some out of every nation in a kingdom that God himself has built that is unshakable, can never go into exile, can never fail, with a king that can never die, with a priest that can never fail. This is the new covenant in my blood. 
As he is sitting in front of them, body and blood in his own flesh, he is not, he is not saying to them, this is my blood, as if there was literally anything happening there with his blood, but he's saying this blood is the symbol of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. In Exodus chapter 24, and this is to understand the connection for us in the Bible between blood and covenant. Blood and covenant. In Exodus chapter 24, the the blood is used to inaugurate and begin and seal the covenant given through Moses. Uh, uh, Moses took the blood and half he sprinkled onto the altar and half he sprinkled onto the people. And what he was symbolizing is by the death of the animal, by the shedding of the blood, you, the altar of God and the people of God are bound together. You cannot escape the blessings of God through uh, when you obey and you cannot escape the cursings of God if you disobey. You are bound together. This covenant is sealed by blood. Leviticus 17 verse 11, it says that atonement is by the blood that is the life, that life is in the blood. The blood of, sorry, the power of the blood is the fact that it represents a life. There was nothing magical about lamb's blood. The only significant significance about it was that it was chosen by God to symbolize the life that people had deserved to give to God because of their sin. We can think the same way about the blood of Christ. There was nothing magical, special, or significant about the red blood cells in the veins of Jesus Christ. If you could get it into a bottle, it would not heal a single one of your illnesses. If you could put it onto an altar, it would not make a holy place. If you could get it and somehow consume it or somehow have a blood transfusion, you would be the same sinful sinner that you are because Jesus was truly human. His blood cells were truly human blood cells. The blood is not the point. The blood symbolizes the deeper meaning. What is in the blood? What is represented by the blood? The very thing that blood maintains, the life. When you, when you were a Hebrew and you saw blood splattered, you knew something died. A life was given. And if God was demanding that life, then when I see the blood, I know that the payment has been made. And so the significance of having blood is not the power of the blood itself, but the fact that God demands a life. Blood being shed means that the life has been given. Therefore, when I see blood, I know my payment is made. And so the blood of the covenant symbolizes the payment of life that is deserved. And therefore, Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law of Moses, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without blood because sins are only forgiven when the life penalty is paid and the life penalty is not considered as paid until the blood is shed. But, Hebrews goes on to say, he has appeared, Christ has appeared, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. When Jesus' blood is shed, what it symbolizes is that his life has been given and therefore an infinite number of souls can be covered, their blood guilt atoned for, their punishment paid because Jesus died. His life was given. So to say that this is the blood of the covenant or this is my blood of the covenant is to say there's a new promise given by God that anybody who believes in me 
eats of me is the analogy. Anybody who believes on me as the Christ, as the Savior, as the King, will be perfected for all time. My blood is the symbol of that. It has been shed, therefore the promise stands true and ratified. The covenant is in effect because the blood of the covenant was spilled. Therefore, the cup that we take at communion and remember is that we are remembering that the king whose meal this is, is the king who died, the king who purchased, the king who sanctified and consecrated all who believe. The promise of the covenant is for forgiveness and eternal life that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So what we do when we come and we eat what Jesus says is my body, and we drink what Jesus says is my blood, we are doing three things. This is how how the Reformed history is sort of, the theologians have put it. We call it in the Lord's Supper a, a sign, a seal, and a partaking or, or, or a, a, uh, <coughs> a, a conveying of, of grace. It is a sign, it is a seal, and it is something that actually conveys or gives grace. When we say it's a sign, what we mean is simply that it is something that shows us and reminds us of the gospel. If I was creative and I was one of those pastors in the skinny jeans and the, and the makeup, <coughs> I'd do cool things like have props on stage. And what I've seen done is, in this, in this guy's understanding that he knows how the human psyche works, just like God does, he sort of invents, if you will let me use this language, he invents his own sacrament. What he did was he had a cross on stage, he had nails, and he had sins written down on pieces of paper. What he was doing is he was, he was putting those, those sins on the cross and he was nailing it there, and he was showing and reminding his people through this sign that your sins are taken on the cross. That is somewhat helpful as you think of it as a sign, except the fact that it's always lame when pastors use props. Nonetheless, it, what he then should have done if he's going to go all the way and really help his people, what he should have done is gotten everybody to, now it's going to sound like a bit of a youth camp, everybody write down their own sins on the piece of paper. If you haven't done this, you, you didn't grow up in a Baptist church. You write your own sins down on a piece of paper, and then you walk up onto stage and get you yourself to nail some sins onto the tree and walk down. Now, that does a second thing. It doesn't just remind and signify something. It's not just a sign. It's sealing this truth to you because you had to get up you had to partake in this, in this ordinance, if you would, this sacrament. You had to actually nail your own sins there and choose to walk away. It's somewhat of a seal to you. You're going, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm entering into this reality. But we don't have that. We're not coming up with our own sacraments. This is what the Lord's Supper is. As, as we pray over it and I hold up the bread and remind you this is the body of Christ, you are remembering through the sign Simply, in your own mind, you're recalling, yes, Jesus took my sin in his body on the tree. Jesus died so that I can live. As I hold up the cup, you're, you're mentally remembering the blood was shed to make the promises true and yes and amen in Christ. But then we do something more. I don't just stand up and show you the body and the blood. I don't just stand up and show you the bread and the wine and then put it down after a nice little prop. I call you forwards, as the word commands elders to, call you forwards to partake, to take and to eat. And in that way, it is not just a sign of remembrance, a symbol. It is a seal that you enter yourself into. You actually go and take that, that element and you enter it into your body as a reminder that, that by faith, you believe those promises and appropriate them to yourself. And thirdly, it is what we call a conveying. 
a conveying of grace. No, Jesus' body is not physically present in the bread and the blood. No, we are not merely remembering. This is sort of two views that are common. A, a, a mere remembrance view where we say, oh, we're just having a meal to remember. And then the Catholic view, which will say, or maybe even the Lutheran view, which will say, no, there's something physically present. We say no. With the Reformers, with Calvin, we'll say this, that Jesus is present by his Holy Spirit to actually convey strength and blessing to our faith and to our souls. It is not just a meal of remembrance. It is not a sacrifice. It is a meal of remembrance, but it is not just a meal of remembrance. It is a meal where we are genuinely communing with the God who saved us. We are genuinely coming into his presence and feasting on Christ in a spiritual way. I hope that we think large thoughts, that we think grand and majestic thoughts about this, the king's meal that we come to partake. And the last few notes of how we should partake. Not just the, the actions we do and, and what it means, but the manner in which a Christian should be coming forward to partake of the meal. First of all, we have to, uh, we have to remember that, that, that eating is the analogy of, of, of belief in the New Testament. It's, it's one of the most powerful analogies because as you, as you eat something, you're trusting it. You're putting it into your body. Hopefully, you're, you're trusting. It's, it's benefits. You're taking it into yourself. And so in the New Testament, this analogy is given for belief. And therefore, this meal is designed around that. That as we eat it, we are remembering the Lord Jesus, but we are to told to partake rightly in 1 Corinthians 11, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves instead of blessing. So the first way in which we should take of the Lord's Supper, the first manner in which we should be taking of the King's meal, is first of all by faith. We ought to be believing the promises of God in the gospel and about this meal. Charles Hodge said that uh, so few Christians benefit from the Lord's Supper, or so many Christians benefit so little from the Lord's Supper because we expect to benefit so little from the Lord's Supper. I think about it as I walk in the doors and notice that they're there. I walk up, I grab a few bits, I say a quick thanks, I gulp it down. It's all just a memory anyway. It's, the Holy Spirit isn't here seeking to convey grace to me, and, and home we go. I, I, I love the practice that, 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 that we have it in this monthly regularity so on the first Sunday of each month so that a week out in the regularity we can always know I'll be praying this week as one who will approach the Lord's Supper. I have to have the faith that believes the gospel and believes that in the meal he will come and bless me. It's first, faith in the gospel and faith in the sacrament. Faith in Christ about what he does through the sacrament rather. Secondly, we should be coming in a state of holiness. This follows very, very automatically from the first one. If we believe what God says this meal is, then we will approach it in a sense of holiness and reverence that automatically affects how you live. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves, therefore, so that when we're coming, we're coming with the right thought about what this meal is, a right thought about the gospel, and a right thought about me who is coming to partake with the Lord Jesus. I'm going to be coming, remembering that my sins are paid for, that I've been freed from sin's, uh, sin's grip. So why would I be living in the grip, voluntarily, of sin? Now, if, if we have faith in Jesus and what he says about the meal, then we will live with a sense 
of holiness. We will judge ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. Not, not The judging of ourselves is not a morbid, super strict examination of our lives over the last month. It is a serious, believing understanding of what we are about to do and receive. When we come appropriately, we are saying, I refuse to care. Sorry, when we come inappropriately, we are saying, I refuse to care about, about my profane, unholy approach. I'll break the third commandment. I'll, I'll take the Lord's name in vain on my lips. I'll take of the, of the elements. When we come in, inappropriately, we are saying, I don't care about my profane approach. But if you don't come because of a profane life that you've been living and you allow yourself to stay there, now you're saying, I don't even care about my not coming because of my profane approach. Never just get comfortable with saying, well, I'm not all that holy. I haven't been living as I ought to have. I have unrepentant sin. I just will be one Christian who doesn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Never let yourself live there. If you miss one, pray, seek the Lord, fast for help with killing of your sin, meet with an elder, do what you can. We are not asking, demanding. The Lord Jesus does not expect that you come in perfection or, or even being the most mature Christian in the room or the most, most holy that you've ever been, but come in faith with a desire for holiness and thirdly, with an expectation that he will do something with an expectation that you won't walk away feeling like you're glowing in the dark, feeling like you've had a tingle in your chest or in your stomach as you partook of the meal, but by faith you expect that God is working and that as you submit to his ordinary means month by month, year by year, he will work in you, not because you, you see some immediate result, but because you trust the word of God and Jesus says he will come and bless you and partake with you in this meal. So to conclude, we, we have the Lord's Supper that we remember what Jesus has done as a once-for-all sacrifice. We participate in that we enter into the symbol by faith and receive from the Lord Jesus strength for our souls and we anticipate. Look at the last verse of our reading today, verse 25. <clears throat> it says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is a sense that while the kingdom is established now and is growing, it is not full, it is not final, it is not realized, it is not consummated. And until the time that Jesus returns and, and gives the kingdom over to his father for the, for the full-orbed perfection of the kingdom, until then he fasts. He fasts. He does not drink of the fruit of the vine until he can drink it with us new. He can drink it with us recreated until he can drink it with us being glorified, the world being remade. He is waiting for that day. And every time we partake, we are waiting for that day. We remember we enter in through partaking by faith and we anticipate what will come because of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection in the future. There is one key message that we take from the Lord's Supper, and this particularly to those who, who are not in Jesus Christ, who don't call themselves Christians. If you are not believing, you've not been forgiven, and you don't have an assurance of the forgiveness of your sins, then to you what the Lord's Supper will tell you and, and scream to you as we remember what we've remembered today is that moral teaching, a better government, more education, higher standards of living, better rules will never, ever be enough to solve 
the human condition as scripture points it out to be. You cannot improve yourself enough. You cannot engage in self-help. You cannot get psychotherapy or, or any kind of therapy that helps enough to solve the ultimate issue. Your ultimate issue is not just a lifestyle. Your ultimate issue is, is not just a lack of education and ignorance. It is the fact that you are by nature an enemy of God, that you have a guilt payment, that you have a, a punishment waiting for you upon your death that can come at any moment. And what the Lord's Supper reminds us and tells you is that do not try and become something so that God can accept you, but rest. The solution was a substitutionary sacrifice that someone would pay your debt, would be killed in your place, and would bleed on account of your sins. And friends, it has happened. Jesus, God himself, came into our flesh so that that flesh could be broken and so that his blood could be spilt for you. Believe that. Be saved today. Enter into the forgiveness and adoption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come into his kingdom by faith, and he will secure you, keep you, love you, until he sees you new in the kingdom of his Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching that your word gives to us. It is sufficient. We don't want to run to other sources and run to other methods and methodologies and, 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 and tricks to try and uh, gain knowledge of you. We rest in your promise of the word. It is sufficient. It tells us all that we need to know, and it tells us so much. We thank you for this glorious picture of the king's meal that he gives to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you know how we work. You know that we're so forgetful. You know how superstitious we can be. You know how, how, how lazy we can be and, and lethargic our faith can be. And so you gave to us something regular, something powerful, something reminding so that we do not forget. Father, I, I pray that we would think this way about the Lord's Supper, that we would, we would each be constantly in a state of repenting because we are remembering the Lord Jesus that died. And we picture that in the Lord's Supper. We would each be in a constant state of communing with you and looking forward to each month when we come around the table and commune together with our Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would give to us an anticipation for the day that we see you face to face, for the day that the kingdom is finalized and consummated and our sin is entirely removed from our flesh and our, our passed on brothers and sisters are with us in the final kingdom. We worship you in person. We feast with you in person, never to die again, never to even sin again. Father God, preserve us through our temptation. Deliver us from evil as we consider that final day. And Lord God, I pray that if there is any today who are unbelieving, who hold to a, a type of Christianity that, that rests all of their soul on, on what they do. They're resting their acceptance before God based on what laws they obey and what, what rights and what, what penance they do. Father God, would you save them? Give to them a faith that rests entirely on Jesus and not on anything that they do. For your word is that those who work are condemned, but those who have faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are justified. Father God, I pray that those who are rebelling against you and walking away from you and trying to escape your voice, that you would call them today. You would call them by the power of your word to the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands arms open, ever ready to accept sinners who trust in his sacrifice. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We praise your most holy name, Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen.